Hello. Um, yeah, this one's about lava and carver and fecky and coconuts. Hope you enjoy it. It's real tropical. Just imagine Robinson Crusoe. We're rolling and walking across Razor Sharp Reef with, um, what's it? Stonefish with the potential to spike your feet. That night I lay hunched on a metal bench, wrapped in my sleeping bag on the tiny ferry heading towards Hapai and Lavesi. Another wretch. The swell was spreading sick around the deck. It was hard to believe these green-faced people were descendants of some of the greatest sailors in history. It was a rough trip, though, on a flat-bottom boat and cold with the wind. I remember waking a few times during the night wondering why the engine had stopped. Tiny boats would appear out of the darkness and supplies would be passed down. A calf that had broken loose in Nukalofa had pulled its owner along the jetty on his ass. Looked subdued and miserable as it was lowered down into the waiting boat. When I reached Lifuka, it was still night time. I got off the boat with the green passengers and um, I found a shady spot in the port and just rolled out my sleeping bag and got a bit of shut eye. I was to meet Lavesi here on sunup. When I opened my eyes, Lavesi was standing over me. He was a typical Tongan bloke, big and scary looking, but placid. I stood up and he shook my hand softly. Hey, you rich, yeah, good. We go like a mafia, then uh, go like a whatever. Lavesi picked up my bag and, despite my protest, carried it back to his auntie's place. I followed him through the village as he tried to tell me what was happening. Liz, take a like a fish, take a like a banana, see pearly, good fish, make a fire, make a fire, whatever, whatever, make a fire, whatever, okay? By the look on his face, he knew I didn't have a clue what he was talking about, but he was waiting for an answer. Yeah, whatever, okay, I smiled. I just thought he was saying, whatever. <laughs> Although Aunt Mafia owned a big old timber house, she preferred to live out in the yard, out in this modest valley that was probably a first home of her husband. Although she was old, I could see the once young woman. Her long hair was now grey. She still had a slim figure, but age hung off her, and there was a bed in the corner where she'd sometimes lie down when she was feeling weary. I sat down at the scrub-top table. Aunt Maffy clapped her hands. Alu, alu to warm one of her pigs that was testing the boundaries to the kitchen. I think she was secretly attached to a pig, though. Must have kept her company now that her husband had gone. Aunt Muffy questioned Lavesi, but he didn't know much himself. I didn't know what I was doing here either. Nothing was really that clear. Just that I jumped on a boat and now I was up in Hapai. Aunt Muffy's cat hobbled in the kitchen, it had been run over and had a real bow-legged walk. I mimed a joke that it would make a good front-crawl swimmer, and we both laughed at the poor cat's expense. Lavesi was kind to his aunt and would often massage her aching muscles for her. She told him to cut up some bread and make me a drink. Lavesi got out the Nescafe 
Aunt Maffy seemed to know where I was coming from. She went out into the garden, picked some lemon tree leaves to make up a traditional brew. There was lots of talking going on between Lavasi and his auntie. They were looking at me, hands moved up and down, fingers stuck up in the air, followed by looks of pain, and a look at the clock that swung from the kitchen wall. Lavasi grabbed my bag and a huge bunch of green bananas, and I ran along behind him as we carried on through the outskirts of the village and along a sandy track that meandered its way through copra plantations and allotments. Whatever, fish and banana was beginning to make sense. Lavasi pointed to a small island a kilometre across the water from where we stood. Whatever island, called whatever. He, he bent down to roll up his jeans and take off his flip-flops before we began wading across the shallow reef towards whatever. Lavasi made the same actions as he had done in Aunt Muffy's kitchen to warn me of stonefish that lived there. He put his hands up like a spike. Due to their camouflage, could be mistaken for a stone, and if stood on, they inject a poison into your foot through a sharp spike. The pain was excruciating. Lavasi tiptoed over the reef, sure-footed, and a certain route that I tried to keep up to. The tide was still going out, and the current sucked at my legs. Lavasi was still going round and round the English he knew, talking about coconuts, banana, fish, whatever, and sea pearly. Halfway across the reef, there's these two dudes fishing on a sandbar. As we approached, they held up their arms to get us to stay put, so we didn't scare the fish. A cast net was swung out, small fish flapped around in the bright sunlight. See Burley, Uncle See Burley, Lavesi explained. It was the fisherman, and here were the fish, maninis. These small fish look a bit like uh, butterfly fish, angelfish. And um, I sat down on the sandbank as C. Pearly snuck around the shoreline with his cast net draped over his shoulder. His mate offered me fecky, an octopus, to bait my fishing hooks. Lavesi was filling the guys in on who I was. Another fisherman approached, dressed only in an Iron Maiden T-shirt. When he got closer, he lifted up the front of his shirt and flashed his penis, laughing. Hey! You, banana? What? You, banana? <laughs> I try to talk about other things. So, can I camp on the island, no problem? Yes, no problem, but you, banana? The fisherman was fascinated to know what a white man's penis looked like. <sighs> Dude kept on at me. I opened the top of my shorts and looked down at my penis. It was looking okay, so I pulled down my shorts. The guy stepped back, dazzled by the brightness. Once I'd flashed my knob, the lads went about their business, shaking their heads and laughing to themselves. Actually, the guy said when I did it, he said, <laughs> you had to be in the situation. It's not like I just got off a plane, walked up to a guy and flashed my penis. But... <laughs> It's all context, right? You've got, got to appease these locals. Maybe it was a custom. I don't know, but um, after I'd done it, actually, he looked at me and went, yes, you can use that. Oh, man. Um, Lavaisi was carrying a huge bunch of green hopi, which is bananas, which we roasted on a fire. 
See, Pearly and his mates brought over some fish and taro. I struggled up a nearby tree for some coconuts. Lavesi frowned when I came back sweating and scratching, pointing out to a tree half the height which was full of nuts. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> the local guys worked quickly through the manini. The fish went in one side of the mouths and the bones came out the other. Brains and eyeballs sucked out. It's crazy. <laughs> the average westerner picking out the tiniest bone they just did it with the tongue. <laughs> I found a shady pandanus tree and put up Gordon's expensive tent. Lavesi see Pearly and Big Banana headed back to their village. The tide was rising and soon it would be too dangerous to cross with the currents that sucked across the reef. The boys had enough fish. Maybe when they got back they'd do a couple of hours on their land tending to their crops before calling it a day. When it fell dark, I nursed the fire with a stick, dodging the swirling smoke. Behind me in the woodland, the sounds of animals crunching across dry leaves carried on the wind. And palm fronds whipped against themselves. I wasn't alone on whatever. Villagers from the mainland had grazed cattle and ran their pigs here. So literally, during the day, there'd be locals who'd come over. And at night, there'd just be me. But right down the other end, there was a dude lived there, I found out later, which will unfold later. When daylight came, I lay wide awake, wondering what I might do today. The last of my water had gone, so when I climbed the trees for coconut juice, I had real incentive to reach the prize. My muscles were getting used to the effort, and the skin on my soles was thickening. The locals could whip the top off coconuts in a couple of strokes with a sharp machete, but I didn't have one. So I sharpened a stick and holding the nut with my feet set about working off the husk. That was hard work. I had a supply of timber and dry leaves to set my fire going. I poured out the juice from the coconut into my pan and stirred it with some powdered milk and porridge, bulking it up with a ripening Hopi banana from Lavesi's bunch. I tied the bunch in a tree, but not high enough. The lower halves of them had been munched by pigs during the night. Fruit bats had found my tomatoes. Hermit crabs and ants took off with the scraps of yesterday's feast. I was definitely contributing to the food chain out here. Well, Eva was surrounded by a reef on both sides. Low-lying... Um, land too, like maybe three meters maximum above sea level and about five kilometers in circumference. The place was fringed with white sand and crumbling coral. It used to be a copra plantation, but the plantation huts had almost been reclaimed by the forest and the well was dry. Every day when the tide was low enough, the villagers would head across to work the reef and cut open coconuts for their pigs. The locals normally carried a sharp metal rod that they used to work out fecky that hid in the crevices, which is octopus, fecky. There was sea cucumbers, urchins, seaweed was eaten, along with any fish they'd catch in their cast nets. They had the perfect diet. 
And this place was where John Olomu was from. Uh, you could see how he'd grown so big living on this amazing diet out here. The villagers normally came on horseback with a dog or two in tow. No one really owned the dogs. They were hungry strays that followed the villagers from the mainland in the hope of a few scraps of fish or even coconut. And I'd actually pulled a couple of these dogs out of the ocean when they were getting swept out to sea. <laughs> dogs would end up having to swim like a kilometre. They'd have to get swept out to sea and have to swim out in this big arc and come back onto the island, poor buggers. I once saw what I thought was maybe an old coconut bobbing it along about a kilometre out to sea. It was a small dog, determined not to die. It swam away from the current and managed to get back to land after swimming a couple of kilometres. On what must have been a Friday, Levasi came to get me, and we went into the village to drink kava. The pepper root that people drink in uh, Polynesia... Fiji, Tonga, um, Vanuatu. There's always um, arguments too. Whose carver's the best? The guys at the carver circle scooped me out a drink with a coconut cup. Someone mentioned fuck the horse. Again, I asked them, what is this fuck the horse? Finally, they told me that in 1777, Captain James Cook had moored off the reef between Waleva and the mainland. The locals swear that their ancestors had seen Cook on the reef climbing up onto a big rock in order to have sex with his horse. <laughs> the most ridiculous thing, but... Um, we weren't there, right? Uh, the boys loved this story and thought it hilarious, especially that I laughed at one of my own people. <laughs> Cook had named this place the Friendly Islands because of the apparent disposition of the inhabitants. The nobles had even prepared a feast and, entertain and entertained Cook and his crew. But 30 years on, it was found that this was all part of a big conspiracy whereby the Tongans wanted to get all the foreigners in the one spot where they could be conveniently killed and their ships looted. Indecisions between the chief and the nobles led to the plan being abandoned, and Cook and his men sailed away, never knowing how close they had been to death. Yeah. Cook finally got down in uh, Hawaii. don't know if anyone's read that. It was an argument. Someone had stolen a canoe, and um, one of his crew, I think, and there was a big argument, and he ended up getting knifed, and I think one of the knives was actually from his own ship that someone had traded to have sex with someone. It's like currency. One morning I was hanging around on the edge of the mainland, waiting for enough rocks to poke out of the sea so I could get back to Waleva, when two local boys, William and Paul, appeared, riding bareback on the family horse. Will had a decent machete, which he offered to lend me, so I could open up a few coconuts. They were interested to know how I was doing out here in my little world. We sat around eating porridge, struggling to communicate. They invited me along to the other side of the island. We took it in turns to ride on the horse through the heart of the island, past the lemon trees and through the swarms of butterflies. Paul found a breadfruit tree and some hopi. 
Will scaled the palms like they, were, they had steps in them. The cast net was thrown over a school of Manini. Someone borrowed a, a pig, and without ceremony, Will and Paul prepared a tongue and feast. The little pig was killed, gutted, its hair burnt off over the fire, washed in the ocean, and a spit made up of tree branches. The hopi and breadfruit and manini were cooked in the coals, and we ate from leaves. Every single thing was fresh from the land or the ocean. The leftovers went into the soil as nutrients. And the trees used the nutrients to bear fruit that the pigs would eat. The offal from the pig fed to the fish, so nothing was wasted. It all went back in. And they poured um, coconut juice over the pig as they were cooking it on the... So they burnt the hairs off, scraped them and washed it in the sea, salt wash. After they gutted it, they put this spike through its butt, right through to its mouth, put it on a spit, and then they poured like coconut milk on the, like coconut juice, on the pig as it was cooking and all the fats were bubbling. By the end of it, you'd, you'd lost all uh, sadness about this poor pig and <laughs> just wanted to eat it, uh, and it disappeared quickly. To me, Paul and Will had idyllic lives, riding bareback over the reef to fish, fit from their work, running, climbing, swimming and fishing. As I said, this was the island where John Olomu of the All Blacks was from. I could see why he grew so strong here. Will didn't seem to think it was idyllic. To him, this was just normality. He'd come back over to see me when he could and lie in my tent in admiration of its ingenuity, looking at my pictures of faraway places and daydreaming. They'd play rugby across the reef as well. They'd be running across coral reef with a coconut, using it as a rugby ball. Like, and they'd literally, he could get across the reef probably in like five minutes across like half a K reef. He was just a machine, this young kid. This made you look totally out of sorts. The water drained off the reef back into the sea. My shadow ran shorter along the sand, but not one horse, man or dog came over to the island. I'd lost track of the days. One seemed to run into the next. I walked to the sandbar on the tip of Wallever and looked across to the mainland. I could see a man as he came closer. I recognised him to be Will. He was in his immaculate Sunday best. His wavy hair stuck down with coconut oil. And he, he was moving swiftly across the reef. In his hand, a silver parcel sparkled. When he reached me, he smiled, handed me the parcel. There was a beautiful carry shell that must have been polished for hours on end to reach its sheen. Fish and yams for you, but I have to go to church, he told me before he ran the 3K back to his village. Just amazing. Like, just the generosity. That's nuts. For such a small island, Lefuka was overwhelmed with churches. Catholic, Methodist, Seventh-day Adventist. One Sunday I scrubbed up the best I could in salt water because there was no fresh water on the island and wandered into Lefuka with the intention of going to church. But the few grubby clothes I had were permanently stained with coconut juice and stank of smoke. 
My hair was salt-encrusted and wild. It shamed me in comparison to the locals who gleamed. The smell of perfume soap blew through the church and out into the street where I stood, listening to the congregation, singing their hymns, Fakatonga. Although they were white man's words, there wasn't the usual morbid undertones that I associated with hymns. Their voices were harmonious and bright, but there were bells, always the bells. They got me. An instinctive dislike of them because, as a kid, bells meant Sunday, which 25 years ago meant my village would be a ghost town, and it was school the next day. Cow and Tofua. I picked up a hermit crab and blew into its shell. Its claws folded out before it. I like these little fellas that ambled around my camp. I tossed a couple of open nuts out the back for the pigs. And with a stick, smoothed the lumps and bumps beneath my tent that hindered a good night's sleep. I shifted out the manini bones that poked about the sand and all too often stuck me in the toes along with the sharp spikes of the pandanus leaves. I climbed up a tree that a week ago had me beat to get to a couple of nuts to use in my porridge. Out over the ocean the clouds had lifted for the first time I could make out a perfect cone of an island maybe 50 miles out to sea. Next to it smoke from a volcano trailed across the horizon. So it was like, it looked like, like a crater like like a crater volcano, like a mat, like an island with that was pretty much mostly a crater, and then next to it there was a cone. It looked like the actual, it looked like the actual volcano had exploded its top, and the cone had just landed next to it. So that was cow and tofu. I had to get over there. I went into the village to track down Lavesi but couldn't find him. Hey, banana! When I turned around, C. Pearlie's mate was smiling at me. The guy in the Iron Maiden t-shirt. Luckily he was wearing trousers at this point. He's, this was in fact Lavesi's old man. Hey, Maloele, coffee, eh, Lavesi? Where's Lavesi? Makes no sense now, because um, I can't speak Tongan. I must have been able to speak a bit back then. His dad gestured that he was still in bed, interfering with himself. See you later, banana, he said, and walked off laughing. Aunt Muffy was still shooing the pig out from the kitchen. Lavaisi was scrubbing up. When he saw me, he gave me a knowing smile, then raised his chin, as if to say, What's this Palangi up to now? Lavesi led me down to his uncle's shop where I bought some bread and butter for our breakfast. Hey, Rich, smokes! Lavesi asked in his usual straightforwardness. It was ironic that the only wants out of here were western crap that couldn't be caught or grown, and most of it, corned beef, coffee, cigarettes, beer, chocolate, was bad for you. Suddenly, after a slow and relaxed breakfast, I was chasing to catch up Lavesi as we headed down toward the wharf to see Moritoni, another uncle, and Lavesi's boss. 
A facoletti leaning on a broom outside her house gave me a cheeky wink, which amused Lavaisi no end. When we found Moritoni, I pointed in the direction of Tafua and Cow. Moritoni, uh, do any boats head out that far? Tomorrow, Moritoni replied. When I asked how much, he raised his shoulders. I don't know. The government fishing boat's taking some scientists to Tafua. Maybe you can uh, make a deal. The next morning, I was out in heavy seas in a flat-bottomed, not seaworthy vessel, heading over to Tofua. It was rough. The boat was stuffed full of boxes and containers of food and equipment for the scientists, four crew, two local environmental officers and their three students, a telecom engineer who was out to fix the aerial on the island, a Hawaiian botanist, his apprentice, and a couple more botanists, one of which spent most of his time hanging his head over the side. There's a lot of people on it. It wasn't a massive boat either. The trip was hairy at times. We ramped over the waves, the flat bottom hitting so hard I thought it might snap in two. The dinghy that was being dragged behind jerked on its line, surfing into the back of the boat. Tofua, like, um, remember Mutiny on the Bounty? <laughs> Captain Bly, victim of the Mutiny on the Bounty, landed in Tofua in the late 1700s when they were on their epic journey in their open boat that the mutineers had given them. They stopped off in search of water but found the defensive locals instead who clubbed the quartermaster, John Norton, splitting his skull and killing him. Because they got these um, hardwood, they look like a hardwood axe like real skull splitters that they used to use in battle. Gnarly. Bly and the rest of the crew escaped without getting any water. This was ironic, as the huge crater lake was full of the stuff. There's, you can actually land a plane on the lake, it's that big. The mutineers had acted out of desperation. Like most travellers, they didn't want to go home. Back to the cold and their pasty-faced wives. They liked it out here in the sun with their beautiful native women. The natives who once guarded their village had long since passed. Tofu was almost uninhabited after the king evacuated the place in 1874 due to the excessive volcanic activity. Now only a handful of people lived here to grow kava. The swell was big when we approached the craggy coastline, but the crew coped well operating the, with expertise, riding in between the peaks, trying to hold us off the rocks as we tried to get ashore. There was no sheltered leaside bay to moor up to, only on the windward side. One of the environment guys jumped out first, and I should have been right behind him, but the dinghy slipped back, leaving me straddled between the rock and the dinghy. It's like really slippy, slimy, weed-covered rocks, and I was sliding down the face. My grip was loosening, and I was, like, digging my nails into the cliff to try. <laughs> I had my backpack on, too, with all my valuables. Um, if I dropped, I'd be slammed between the dinghy and the rocks and drop into the drink. And with my pack on, sink like a stone. The dinghy moved around violently, but I was determined not to fall. At that moment... The one guy who had already jumped ashore stuck out a huge strong arm and dragged me up onto the rocks. 
Unbelievably, the crew managed to get everything and everyone safely ashore in these rough conditions. They made off back to the fishing boat as we struggled up the hillside to the deserted village. Unbeknownst to me, I managed to bum a ride with some bloke called Art, who was a doctor at a Hawaiian university and the leading authority on Pacific botany. He was a mentor to a Palangi from American Samoa, who spoke mainly in Latin, as he and Art immediately began their observations of what was growing out here. It was obvious from the start that several of the Palangis considered themselves above the Tongan guys. Helping out, carrying up the supplies was beneath them. After we had loaded up the old schoolhouse with supplies, I walked back down to the edge of the tree line where I could catch a glimpse of the ocean. The place was windswept, wild and inhospitable in comparison to the sleepy, tranquil waters of whatever. In the distance, a perfect steep-sided cone reached out over a thousand metres from the water. Far out. This was the island of Cow. The Tongans joked that it was once the top of Tafua before it was blown into the sea by the volcano. In the morning, the botanists woke up complaining about being bitten by fleas and mosquitoes. They seemed a little concerned at the condition of the schoolhouse that was thick enough with dirt to plant potatoes and no less than derelict. Pigs had free run of the place. While the scientists waited to be served some kind of breakfast, I choked on the smoke swirling round the oil drum as I tried to cook up some porridge in the high winds. After breakfast, we began our ascent of Tofua, working our way along the switchbacks toward the summit. That must have been over a thousand metres then, because I remember looking from the top down at the um, cone, which was a thousand metres. The scientists were getting excited at their discovering rare plants that were unique to only a handful of islands. I was interested for a while, but when all the Latin names rolled into one, I went up front, back with the younger Tongan guys who were making full use of their machetes, lobbing down vegetation that posed no obstacle on this sparse hillside, nearing the rim of the crater. We Me and the young fellas leant on our bellies and peered over the edge into the crater, thinking we might see lava bubbling, but it was a massive crater-like, with some just steam from lava tubes around the edges and the whiff of sulphur. Samola, the Tongan environmental officer, fingered out the last of the tuna from my can and cast it down in the volcano. Jesus, Samola, you're supposed to be the environmental officer. His European sidekick shook his head. Rubbish disposal was always a big problem, even more so for the island communities. Where the hell do you put it? Samola was fronting rubbish awareness in Tongan schools. Even on my little whatever, I was amazed how much crap I'd accumulated in a few days. The first load I'd carted back to town. Lavesi, what happens to the rubbish if I put it in this bin? I'll bury, burn, or throw into sea. <laughs> what was the point? The fishermen had gone and wouldn't be back for two weeks. 
they've been so they've been given this boat because they managed to get out on this boat. It was like a government boat, and kind of got free use of it. So they were using it to get big fish out to sea, where normally they'd be stuck on the inner reefs. So they were having a ball, but they weren't. They'd gone, and they won't be back for a couple of weeks. So I was kind of stuck here. The majority of the coastline was inaccessible, and the temperature was cold. I started getting a bit depressed at the thought of hanging around so long in the company of these condescending palangis. One of them put an arm on my shoulder as if we were brothers and said, These Tongan characters like children, giggling and joking all the time. I looked into his stern, pasty face and wondered if he'd ever laughed, not just smiled and made the noises I mean, really laughed. By the, the best of luck, the fishermen returned to drop off some fish before heading off. I grabbed my bag and made down to the shore. The crew weren't regular deep-sea fishermen, as I said. They normally fished around the outer reef of Lufuka, so they were pleased with their catch of tuna, mackerel and trevelli. We motored back into the swell of an uh, unprotected channel between Tofua and Cow. When we reached Cow, we weighed anchor and made a cross in the dinghy towards shore. It was a tricky job. Even on the lee side of the island, the swell working against us, the two strong guys strained to hold anchor ropes at the bow and stern of the dinghy. We worked on the shoreline, handballing rocks over to them. There was like these, because um, there's barely, it's all coral around there, so there's barely any rock. So they used to come at this cow and grab these big boulders off the beach, these big volcanic, like giant black rocks full of honeycombs. So we're handballing these up back into the boat and they're filling up the bottom of the boat in the, in the holds. The two strong guys strained the whole ropes at the bow and stern of the dinghy. We worked on the shoreline, handballing rocks over to them. The youngest crew member, maybe 20 years old and solidly built, held a stern rope and caught the big rocks with his spare hand in between, <laughs> between the to and fro of the ocean. The strength of this dude. Insane. By the fourth dinghy load, the hull of the flat bottom boat was full. These volcanic rocks, worn round and smooth by the constant pounding of the ocean, were well sought after back in Tongatapu. But... The fisherman said the main reasoning for the rocks was to give the boat extra ballast, to hold it more stable, as it was nearing tipping over a couple of times already. I'm not sure about the uh, logic behind that, because if we did get water on board, we might just sink like a stone, right? <laughs> Back on board after lugging all these rocks, the blokes viewed me differently. Now they'd seen a white man do work. Rewarding me with a huge chunk of fish and some tatter. Paul and Souvenir threw out the lures as we navigated around Cow. That was his name, Souvenir. There was a lot of Tongan names named after English names that weren't actual names, but they sounded nice, like Souvenir. Sounds great. <laughs> Paul's line ran out fast. He hooked a big fish. He was only a small bloke, more of a Southeast Asian build than Tongan. When the Wahoo was pulled over into the boat, 
Paul panicked. He was so excited, screaming, Ika, Ika! He slipped and fell on top of it. The thing was bigger than Paul himself. The fish flapping around beneath him, shaking around. Paul tried to preserve his dignity and scrambled to his feet, but it was too light for we were all in hysterics. In my mind, it was the best reaction to catching such a fine fish. A wahoo, a cross between tuna and mackerel, and it could easily feed 20 people. And the excitement was, uh, we were on the boat with Al, when he said, shut up, you pussies, and sliced it up himself, and took all the joy out of the situation. It was on dusk when we reached Wellever. It's a pretty risky navigation through the reef in the dark, and I appreciated that they'd done this for me. Paul handed me a massive fish to eat on the island, but I managed to persuade him to give me one that I could carry in one hand, and I jumped over the side into the shallows. I reached into my bag and took out a can of corned beef, which I threw up to Paul. Corned beef was a favoured dish over here, as I'd said, and there was a local custom where the wives beat the hell out of it the tin of corned beef with a huge stick to vent their frustrations with their husbands. <laughs> uh, marriage guidance cancel? Nah, just get a can of corned beef and beat the shit out of it. Fecky and coconuts. I was happy in my sheltered little corner of whatever. Sat around a fire, swinging in the trees, Diving the coal heads outside my front door. But I was completely starved of company. And sometimes I'd imagine how great it would be to have shared this place with someone from my world. It didn't overwhelm me, but it came in waves. I imagine my family here living with me, Dad helping me get in the fire cracking, and my sis and me wandering along the reefs on a sunset, sharing what I was experiencing. Without them, without friends, a man could go crazy out here with so much time on his hands. Nice. I got up pretty light. Well, it must have been because there were rocks sticking out of the sea. I scrambled out into the daylight, stepping on a sharp manini bone. Shit! <laughs> I looked up and down the beach. No one was working the reef. Bare-assed and a bit red, I wandered down into the ocean, feeling freer than I had in a long time. Just me and the ocean. I swam around a while with my fishing line and snorkel over the reef, but I felt a little overexposed, without any protection against the sharp coral fish hooks and biting fish. The flute fish that I wanted to take my bait came up and stared at me with inquiring eyes, and that's all they did. I hooked a parrotfish, but I had to let it go. I couldn't eat something so beautiful to be blackened on a fire and watch its eyes milk over. So I ended up having corned beef and porridge with hopi, swilled down with coconut juice. I walked up the beach towards camp, wondering what time the horses would be coming over the reef. The tide was pretty low. I looked up as I made a grab for my sarong and a woman was stood in the shadows of my pandanus tree, smiling at me. Her eyes were everywhere, Malo alele, I said, wrapping myself up in my sarong. She kept on smiling, but as I got closer, her smile dropped. My husband, she pointed to the other side of the island. He, Fecky. Oh, good. Um, I wanted to be hospitable. 
but for want of the tongue and words, all I could do was offer her some coconuts. She took them out of courtesy and beckoned me across the other side of the island where her husband was. When he saw me with his wife, he grew suspicious. He held a sack of wriggling sea life. Tentacles hung out. Sea cucumbers leaked their juices. Manini helplessly sucked at the air. He held his octopus prong tight in his free hand. I couldn't understand what they were talking about. The high-pitched melody of the woman's voice, her embarrassed smile, in contrast to the mean-looking gruffness of her husband. It felt pretty daft handing them a couple of coconuts, for although valuable to me, with no water, and surely a lifesaver out here, but to him, they were more white than worth. I thought that Gruff might have offered me an octopus, but he stuffed them on his horse and rode off with his wife running behind. I didn't actually realise that the tides changed every day. They moved forward half an hour. So you get two high tides and two low tides in 24 hours, but they're moving forward at like half an hour increment every day. So I just got up and thought, yeah, sweet. Sun's only just above the horizon. No one's coming yet. But the tide had changed and it was low tide, so people came early. And I got sprung doing my uh, back to nature in the ocean. I got a fire going and porridge in the pan. Edmund Hillary was at Everest Base Camp, and even though I leant up against my shady tree in 30 degrees of heat, I was right there with him. The book had served me well for the rainy days when dry tinder was hard to find. My red chapters were a good replacement. Some days the rain wouldn't abate, and I'd be sat around my camp as miserable as a kid on a Sunday afternoon, following raindrops across his bedroom window. On these days, the coconut trees were too slippery to climb, and the only dry timber would be beneath leaves and tree trunks on the forest floor. Making a fire was a real challenge, but the need for warm food and the heat of the fire to raise the spirits gave a great incentive. I built a roof over the fireplace, layering it with palm leaves, which would dry, which in turn could be burnt and replaced with wet ones. On these days, sand stuck everywhere, and the damp was hard to escape. After too many visits behind my second favourite pandanus tree swinging my ass over a hole I dug in the sand I realised I wasn't immune to the coconut laxative partly due to my lack of drinking water I was going through five coconuts a day there was water on the island but that had to be because whatever wasn't totally inhabited There was water on the island, there had to be, because whatever wasn't totally uninhabited. There were a few fishermen living a mile or so along the beach, and a guy called Sonny who took in travellers at a place he advertised as a guest house. The place was no more than two shacks and a hammock. He lived halfway along the west coast. I called down there one day in the hope of throwing a bucket down his well, but the place was deserted. I swung in his hammock for a while watching a black pig dig a huge crater on the shoreline as it searched for food. Its piglets scampered around the place, looking for scraps, poised, ready to run should someone try to borrow them for the fire. I rolled in the hammock, my sudden movement setting them off away before they settled back again. The place was eerie, just me and the pigs. I was glad of their company. I opened a few old meat coconuts for them kind of penance for eating one of their kin with William and Paul the other day. I made my way back along the shoreline to my familiar place. 
As I made to leave, Sonny showed up in his outrigger, with a pickup of two new travellers from town. He knew who I was. He must have motored past me a few times. He called out to me to come back. He was helping out two Japanese girls from his boat. He had one of them in a fireman's lift, and he was pretty hands-on all over her. But she didn't seem to mind. In his free hand, he had a beer. Ah, so you're camperman, camping on my island. It wasn't his island, by the way. I felt a conversation leading to a familiar place that always divides travellers from locals. Money. Why don't you like uh, come stay here? I don't have enough. I don't have that much cash, mate. Well, so you live free. That's not the Palangi way. Polynesian, yes, but Palangi make you pay for everything. He was pretty bang on there. <laughs> Sonny was broad-minded and knowledgeable from being in contact with people from all over the world, and he let me know it. I felt my paradise was slipping away from me. Okay, you don't want me here. It's fine. I'll leave. I'll take my tent. No, no, you can stay. I just say that all, you know? Oh, like all Palangi. Paradise was an illusion in this world of takers. Sonny had pissed me off. Stereotyping me as just another white ass with money and little understanding. I made my escape from Sonny's words, walking down onto the shore and away. Out to see a yacht had just dropped anchor. I recognised it. It was Braveheart. Amanda and Al were stood on deck, staring across the water to where I stood. Without thought, I whistled to get their attention. They heard the whistle, but the sun was behind me, and so they were having a hard time making me out against the sand. I put my fingers to my tongue again, as if to whistle, but thought better of it. I didn't want to see Al again. I didn't want him here in my new world, sharing this life. I ran the few k's back to my tent along the shoreline, grabbed a few belongings from my tent, and walked across the reef in search of Lavesi, and surely a friend to talk to. Beers are expensive for a local, and for me, my financial situation too, but I worked out I could afford a few bevies for a Lavesi in me, sort of thank you for his help before I left this island life. We swigged them like underage kids down by the harbour, where Lavesi's friends wouldn't find him. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd probably have like half a beer each. A small local boy hung around waiting for our empties. Lavesi drank quickly, for he was late for his carver meeting, which must have taken a time to get to, walking the way he did after so many beers. Earlier that evening, Lavesi and Aunt Muffy had shaken their heads at the state of my clothes. Yeah, my clothes were so bad, because I just didn't have anything up here. Permanently stained an ominous brown colour from the juice of coconut husks. And they could have stood up on their own, being starched in sea salt. They hunted around the house for clean clothes that I could wear. Brown flares, pink shirts. I ended up in a pair of pastel green shorts from the 70s, and an oversized t-shirt. But I was clean at least. Lavesi handed me his comb. <laughs> yeah, I was a pitiful sight. Big hair, pastel greens, big baggy t-shirt. <laughs> you went into a shop to get clothes that actually complement your physique. You just get the exact opposite and, uh, and the colours. 
<laughs> yeah, I look really shit in pastel green and baggy t-shirts. Yeah, cool. All right. I made the best I could of my appearance and headed through the pitch black streets to the church hall. The place was packed, full of people of all ages, with as many on the outside peering through the slat windows. Local youngsters did a seated dance involving head, hand and arm movements in perfect synchronisation, which was truly graceful and amazing. Afterwards, the epitome of a Tongan beauty was covered in coconut oil by relatives performing the Taurunga. If I've got that wrong, sorry. As the Ponaki clapped his hands behind her as encouragement, and he broke off into like a really funky dance for his years. He was like the backup dancer. People would walk up and stick money on her body. If it fell, the aunties would be on hand to scoop it up quickly into their pockets. Apparently, it went back to the church funds. This dancing was awesome. I was hoping to stay the grey man in this place. I wasn't the only Palangi, maybe three or four others, stood stiffly in comparison to the locals' relaxed manner. On the other side of the hall, one of the aunties was raising her eyebrows at me, meaning, Come on, boy, ask me to dance. This is a great Tongan tradition where you have to dance with a partner, which means asking someone to dance isn't a big deal, so you're not allowed to dance on your own. <laughs> the man has to ask the woman, so sheepishly, I walked across the hall and bowed in front of the big old auntie. After a few more partners ranging from five years old to 70, the rust in my legs cleared and I forgot about the hundreds of people watching from outside. I closed my eyes and got into any groove I could find. The mad hermit from the island went a little crazy. Even the boisterous aunties were frowning and they were dancing so wildly. One of them was bounced on the backside by a sister. As the night wore on, the oldies and very young went home, leaving the youth to party. The young sailor from Tofua was here, one of the um, dudes on the fishing boat. He hobbled around making a complete dick of himself. It was totally disheartening to see a proud guy at sea compromised by alcohol. I was dancing with a local girl with the most beautiful eyes when Lavesi's head appeared through the slats in the window. Rich, you got money, pay me inside. I dug around in my pastel greens but I didn't turn out a single coin. He looked at me through the window with his pocket linings turned out. Okay, Rich, come on, take a like a home. Aunt Maffy, don't wake Aunt Maffy. Without money for drinks and in the clothes I was wearing, I'd already talked myself into not impressing this girl, which meant leaving was not such a hard thing to do. Lavacy and I wandered back towards Aunt Maffy's down the side of the hall. Back at... Back at Maffy's place, Lavacy sought me out with a sheet, and I crashed out. I don't know if what happened next was a huge misunderstanding, but um, Lavacy sought me out with a sheet, and we were in this big bedroom. I remember the light coming through the window, and um, I was crashed out on the floor. I was drifting off to sleep when Lavacy appeared at the foot of the bed. Hey, Ridge, you and me. You and me, what, mate? You and me? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're friends. We're friends. You and me, friends. No, no, you and me. Fuck that. Fuck. No, coffee, man. Coffee, what the? No. Shh, you work at Muffy. Shh, shh. Fuck that.
I stared up at this huge Tonga bloke. He sat down on his mattress. Please, come on, lie here. I couldn't get back to the island because it was fucking high tide, so I couldn't get over the reef. But I'm not staying here with my ass against the wall. That? I jumped out of bed and made my way out into the night. Leeds, don't go. It's danger on the reef. Too dark. High tide. No. Fuck that, man. I'm out. I'm gone. Fuck. Lavaisi, a friend. My paradise. Sunny. Everything seemed to be turning sour. I wish I'd stayed in Tafua, leaving only happy, rose-tinted memories of this place. That's what travellers do best. They run away before the bubble bursts. That's why travelling's so good. Just stay in a place until it, you're just focusing on the light. Oh, look at that, look at that. Isn't this great? Oh, beautiful, look at that, wow, wow. Then when it starts getting stale, just get the hell out of there. Just go to another place. <laughs> I sneaked out of the house and headed back towards whatever. But it was so dark, the tide was high. I couldn't get across to the warmth of my tent. And it was actually quite cold in Tonga this time of year, especially when the wind blew, the trade winds. I was sat on the edge of the mainland on this sand. I only had shorts, a t-shirt, and the wind was howling. Luckily, um, Edmund Hillary came in again. I lit a fire with some of his book. It'd been raining, so I wandered around in the darkness, feeling my way around for some dry timber. I managed to find a, a shelter by the edge of a copra plantation. I untied the stakes holding the grass roof and folded it down on one side to take some of the sting out of the wind. And I lay there a while by the fire, with my feet in the bag I had my books in to keep in some heat. But then thirst got me out of my den and I'm struggling up one of the purposely smooth plantation palms. Fuck, it was too late for this crap. I'm trying to climb a coconut like two in the morning. I watched the fire die down again. When I was too tired to get up for more fuel, I just buried it under where I was lying. Made a kind of underground slow fire beneath the broken coral. Before sunrise, I was reading the last few pages of my book on the shoreline in the first rays of the weak sun, waiting for the tide. When I noticed an obvious palangi overloaded with bags trying to make his way to the island and Sonny's place. I warned him of the tide and offered he'd wait here for a while. He seemed really disappointed to see another palangi in his personal adventure. <laughs> Another feeling, but he was glad of the warning. Thanks for listening, and I've got one more episode. I thought I only had one, but I've got two. So one more to go, and then I'm going to get more material. All right. Cheers. Bye. Also, apologies with the facoletti. It means like a lady, but it's not always the last boy in a family. It's just 
boy in the family who feels that they would prefer to be a girl. So they just follow the gender trends. It's not like, oh, but I'm, I'm a bloke and I want to play rugby. No, you're the last boy. You've got to be the lady. I've got no girls in the family. <laughs> so it's not like that. All right. Cheers, boy. <laughs>